Hello, hello, this is Week by Week. I'm Celeste and I'm 30 weeks pregnant. On today's episode, we start out with an update with my husband, Dave Hill, and later on we have registered dietitian and mother, Katie Gant. Let's do this. Here we are, we are at week 30. What? 30 weeks pregnant. Three quarters of the way. We got 10 weeks to go, assuming he gets here in week 40. And that's crazy. Yep. Keep cooking, buddy. Stay in there. Okay, okay. (laughs) It is crazy. So what has happened this week? We have a baby shower coming up via Zoom hosted by your family. By my family. Which is very sweet. so sweet. sweet. We've been... We've got a, a box that came that is, I'm assuming, has like party favors in it. And your mom dropped off balloons and mm-hmm. streamers and, and a little little sign Banner for us to put up. Banner that says, boy, oh, boy. It says, boy, oh, boy. Very cute. Very cute. It's such a weird world to be doing Zoom parties. It is. And yet, it's also very nice to be connected to everybody. Very nice. Because I think, from what I know, it'll be... More people that than we would have had had we done an in-person shower with my family. Yes, because you can get people from other states all yes. piled in there. Mm-hmm. State pile. And all the old Zoom state pile. So this has been the week of just feeding, heavy eating. Yes. Trying to just get anything. In my body so we can get this little boy to grow big and strong. Lots of me bringing you food and saying, eat this. Yes. It's a very Alice in Wonderland. He'll set little things in front of me with little signs that say, like, eat, eat me. Drink this. Drink this. That's not true. But it would be cute if it was. So maybe get on that. (laughs) Oh. Maybe get on that or something, please. God. (sighs) Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, the highlight I would say of this week has been that he is very active. Yeah. Like maybe has flipped because our last appointment, he was still head up Mm -hmm. and we're hoping in these next couple weeks or two, he'll bring his head down Mm -hmm. as he prepares for birth. Yeah. So we definitely had one day where I felt a little nauseous and his movement was like wild. Yeah. Where... I, I don't know, obviously, because this is going to come as a real surprise. I can't see inside my belly. So it's all sensation. But I do, I think that there is at least a chance that that happened. I think a pretty good one from what I've read. So that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed we'll have a, a nice update about that after our next appointment in week 31. And... You know, just getting a lot more acid going on in my body. Yeah. And sleep is getting harder and less comfy. Yes. How we've been doing okay, though, you and me. Absolutely. I feel like throughout this pregnancy, and I think probably this is also symptomatic of being in a pandemic, I think we go through weeks where it's like there will be a consistent week where it's like things are pretty mellow and we feel pretty connected. And then there will be like a week where it's like, oh, this is just going to be a fighting week, you know, or this is going to be like a week where we're on edge or a little bit more grumpy or snappy or, you know, whatever the other seven dwarves are. (laughs) 
the seven dwarves of pregnancy. Cravy, <laughs> snappy, hangry. Sexy. Sexy. Snuggly. Snuggly. Snap. Do- and, and dopey. Already. Dopey forgetful. is pregnancy grave. <laughs> oh forgetful. Yeah, yeah. Dopey is fine. He he got it first, but I didn't listen because I was thinking about my own stuff. And that is what you don't do when you have a conversation with someone. You should listen to them. <laughs> Words to live by. Words to live by. Um, you want to do some stats? I would like to do some stats. Let's see. This week, he's around 16 inches long and about three pounds. And is around the size of a bunch of broccoli or the size of a large cabbage. And he's now able to grasp his foot. An adorable skill they will use once they're born to grasp your finger. That's sweet. That melts me. Yeah. I can't wait for that. Just to reach out and grab your little finger. So in terms of what mama is experiencing, and I'm reading it. I'm not referring to myself yet as mama, but I guess I could start. Uh, Oh, yes. It says I could be experiencing overheating as my metabolism increases and my belly continues to grow. Let me tell you, I am a person who runs very cold and I am hot so much. Like at night, I've had to take blankets off of me. If I'm sitting for too long or, you know, just having a conversation, all of a sudden I'm so hot and sweaty, I am at that point for sure. And it doesn't help that we're in L.A. and it's hot outside. So and Yeah, it just, just started to get into the real hot times, which is just perfect timing. Yes. Definitely trying to drink a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> this says Lots another great water. trick is a drop of peppermint essential oil behind your ears. Wow, that's very specific. We can order some peppermint essential oil. I will say a little fun benefit. Benefit. <laughs> that's uh, half benefit, half elephant. <laughs> and, and you know what? Elephants are a, a little bit of a theme in his room. Yeah. Part of his, little, I guess it's like kind of a nature outdoorsy theme. Right? Yeah, wild. But it's not like outdoors. Cute wild animals. Cute wild animals with stars and stuff. Too. Yeah. Got to get some space in there. Yeah. I'll, I'll post a picture at some point of his nursery. But a nice benefit of drinking all of this ice water to cool down is when I drink ice water, he starts kicking around. And so I get to feel him move it all around, which is, as I say every single time I mention it, just the best feeling. Oh, we've been definitely doing kick counts. Oh, yeah. I would say he usually ranges anywhere between like two minutes to 15 minutes tends mm-hmm. to be. And he tends to ra- or land mostly in the round like six minute time frame. And I try to do those at the same time every night. But usually after dinner when he is kicking around because he loves it when I eat. Pew, 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 pew. Sweet boy. Oh, it says that my bump is expanding. Do you think it's getting bigger? I do. It's it's going sideways now. Yeah, it's getting wider. It was like for a while just like going forward and now I feel like it's filling out. So it's like more to like my hips. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's not what I wanted to say. Like more to my sides. Like now it's yeah. like a fuller baby belly. It's very cute. If I do say so myself. I agree. <laughs> I like my belly. <laughs> Let's see. Anything else? Hiccups. Hiccups. Oh, boy, does he hiccup. 
I feel like it's like if I eat or drink, it tends to be sometime around then he mm-hmm. he starts to hiccup. But maybe I am also falsely correlating those experiences. But mm-hmm. it's a funny feeling. It's a very consistent little like boop, 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 sweet boy. And do my ankles or feet look swollen? I guess now is the time that about 75% of pregnant women suffer from su- – I guess they look a little swollen. A little bit more. Yeah. yeah. A little bit bigger. A little bit. Just a real-time check. Yeah, it's a real-time foot check. Knock on wood, and this is not something you and I normally get too in-depth with discussing. La, 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 la. <laughs> Knock on wood, I have not had constipation at this point, so fingers crossed that that continues. Stretch marks, trying to just, like, oil and stay on top of it but i've also heard that that doesn't necessarily really do anything i'm sure keeping your skin moisturized does but like it's one of those things that like you're either gonna get it or not Mm. and that a lot of it comes down to genetics but Mm. anyway fatigue fatigue has definitely increased Mm -hmm. definitely feeling more tired definitely feeling i just you know what in the last like week or two i've gotten to a point where I'm more tired and I just don't, I don't want to do as much, you know, I just don't. And it's harder for me to feel as like motivated, I guess, or, or I'll do something like one thing and I'll get so tired. So I'm definitely feeling that. And that's a really, if we're going to, let's, we'll bring it back because this has been a silly introduction or a silly update, but I will say that's a really hard place for me because I think I get probably too much worth associated with what I'm doing or, you know, my ability to execute a task or work or move forward in career stuff. So that is a hard place for me to be where it's like, I don't have the energy to want to do too much right now. Or, you know, I am trying to get more comfortable with relaxing and letting myself just feel like I'm enough in whatever place I currently am. It will feel like a big victory the day when I say, go take a nap. And you actually do. I know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll find some trick. I also have a theory that pregnancy is just toddler training for Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like, he tells me, he's like, Maybe you should take a nap and there's resistance to naps or I'm bumping into things or I get really tired and fall asleep and then don't really want to get up and get ready for bed. <laughs> so And then toddle around half asleep. Yes. Getting ready for bed. There you go. What a pleasure to be here. What a pleasure to be next to you. What Do a you- pleasure to be with you too, baby boy. You gonna kick? We spend a lot of time staring at my belly. (laughs) (laughs) Where the action is. It's where the action is. Hi, everyone. Just popping in to say if you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Week by Week Podcast. Our guest today is Katie Gant. 
Katie is a registered dietitian specializing in eating disorders and disordered eating, as well as a registered yoga teacher providing trauma-informed yoga to her eating disorder clients. She also has a two-year-old daughter named Leona. After going through pregnancy, gestational diabetes, and then postpartum anxiety, she became passionate about helping women address food and body issues through pregnancy and postpartum. She also assists in providing educational talks to medical professionals on how to address weight bias in the medical field and how to screen for disordered eating in pregnancy. I had a fantastic conversation with Katie. She's so delightful, filled with so much wisdom, and just left me with so much to think about. So here we go. So I guess I'm going to start a little bit, if you can tell me first a little bit about your experience as a dietitian and kind of what your job is and what attracted you to that job. Sure. So, yep, I'm a registered dietitian and I specialize in eating disorders slash disordered eating. And what is interesting is I actually started doing that in pregnancy. Hmm. So I was working at a hospital when I first became a dietitian, just doing clinical nutrition, which would be like diabetes education, high blood pressure, just general stuff. And then I was kind of filling in at a residential eating disorder treatment center for women. And it just sparked something in me, just seeing something that so many women struggle with on a spectrum. So sure, not everyone has an eating disorder, but I would say in our culture, it's so common to have some sort of disordered eating or some negative body image. And so finally feeling like, oh, I can actually help women have a good relationship with food to not feel shame around food choices and to maybe feel comfortable in your body, whatever size that is. And I think being pregnant at that time really just made me connect with that population because my body was changing. I had gestational diabetes, which was just its own different piece because I had no family history. I had zero risk factors for it. And the weird thing about gestational diabetes that people don't realize is it's all about the placenta. And so it's the placenta's struggle to adequately produce hormones in a way that helps you have good insulin. So a lot of times we think it's about body size. And I remember when I had my test, the person administering my test when I didn't pass was like, I can't believe it. You're not fat. And I was like, what? Like, (laughs) I'm a dietitian. I know that's not what it's about. Like that's, but that shows the stigma in our culture. And so I really made that transition in my pregnancy because I was just, I had finally found the thing that made me really passionate around nutrition and body. I I mean, I can honestly say I have had my own experiences with that. And in terms of materials or resources for pregnant women, it still feels like it's such a taboo thing, or it feels like it's like too shameful to talk about, or like it just doesn't feel that open as a conversation piece. And so it's so great just to hear that that's something that you're navigating. Can you tell me a little bit about how you approach the work if you are working with a pregnant woman struggling with something like that? Sure. So I get people who have had all different experiences. So what we know statistically is that if you have a history of an eating disorder, we actually tend to see it usually resolve during pregnancy, not always. Mm-hmm. 
but then there's a really high risk in those first six months postpartum of it coming back and usually pretty intensely for a lot of reasons. So we have hormone changes that contribute so much to eating disorder and how we feel about our body. One, our body's completely different. It's gone through, you know, I don't like to use the word trauma, but like birthing a child and growing a child is a toll on the body physically. And there's also such pressure on women to bounce back. Like whoever bounces back the fastest, it's that's the the prize, right? To be back in your pre-baby body. And one of the first things that I tell my clients is, we're not pre-baby anymore. Mm. So let's just take that off the table. Like we have now made a human. So why do we need to be pre-baby body? Our body is no longer pre-baby. So how about we try and honor what our body has just done, which is a miracle. Mm -hmm. So the other piece, especially if they're struggling with an eating disorder while pregnant, is we immediately bring the OBGYN as closely as possible We do a ton of weight monitoring, but we do what's called blind weights generally, which means that my client doesn't see their weight. So I try and take away triggers as much as possible as well, like seeing your weight go up and things it's supposed to do, but can be really hard. And I make sure that they're getting enough to eat. That's also one of our big things if I'm struggling with someone who's more restrictive. And really it's about consistent meetings. I meet with them very often. We have constant check-ins with the rest of the team. We also usually bring a therapist on board just because if an eating disorder is diagnosed, that's a mental health Mm -hmm. concern. So we really need to have the therapy piece on as well. And really that's the main goal during pregnancy, sufficient intake, working on body acceptance and keeping really, really close watch with a full team. So doctor therapist, dietitian. I'm really curious about the element of body acceptance, because as you're saying for pregnancy and for postpartum, you are dealing with a new body now, it feels like. And so do you have tools or, or ways that you navigate and approach that when you're talking to people? Yeah. So one of the first things that I really work with clients on is I don't even ask you to love your body. I think there's this idea that we should just, we should love our body all the time, whatever. And for some people they do, and that's amazing. I love that for them. But to set that expectation that we love our body all the time can just create another idea that we're not doing something right. So I work with the idea in body image that we exist on a spectrum Mm -hmm. all the way from like body hate to body love and a lot in between. And it changes. Some days we hate our body. Some days we accept our body. And some days we like our body maybe, but that no matter how we feel about it, the goal is to always do loving acts to our body versus things that harm our body, like restriction for some people, purging, throwing up some people with binge eating disorder who, who eat in a way that is harmful. So the goal being that the thoughts might not be there yet in terms of how we feel about our body in a positive way. But can we focus on constantly doing acts of love to our body for the safety of our baby, if that's usually the good motivator, or just as showing our body that we can do that act of love, even if we don't feel the love yet. So we do really small goals. So like, if we're in a really bad body day, can we take a shower? Mm. Can we sit outside? Can we 
smell if there's a, a, an essential oil that we really like? Can we smell that? So it doesn't have to be these big gestures. Also using food as much as possible to do that. So if it's a lot of times with eating disorders, you have safe food and unsafe food. So maybe if we're having a really hard day, we just focus on eating our safe foods, even if that's for some people, you know, raisins, you know, I'm just picking something like, okay, great. If all we can eat today is raisins, that's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to figure out what can we do to show that act to our body, even if we're not feeling it. That's fantastic. Is that a similar mentality that you would carry over then for postpartum? If like, let's say somebody does go through pregnancy and is able to, if it is at bay to some extent during pregnancy, and then kind of you see that influx again after uh, in postpartum, yeah, is that kind of this generally the same mentality? It definitely is. You know, the one of the things that's really makes my job so interesting is it's everyone's disordered eating usually manifests in different ways. Mm-hmm. And the reason I switch back and forth, I should probably say between eating disorder, disordered eating is so an eating disorder is diagnosed, so mm-hmm. like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. Whereas disordered eating is not a diagnosable condition. It usually means that they're engaging in behaviors that you would see in like anorexia or binge eating disorder, but they don't meet the diagnostic criteria. So if that's why you see me kind of switching back and forth and a lot of people fall into disordered eating. So still behaviors around food that are harmful, but they don't meet all of the diagnostic criteria. So yes. So after pregnancy, it's basically the same is constant check-ins because postpartum is so different for everybody. I personally had postpartum anxiety. And so having to navigate that, some people, especially research shows, if you have a history of an eating disorder, you're at more risk for postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. So really, again, bringing that team in really tightly frequent check-ins with therapist, frequent check-ins with dietitian, frequent check-ins with OBGYN. Um, or if you're transitioning back to a regular doctor, check-ins with that physician. But really the same idea of taking it day by day, small goals, because there's just so much going on. And if there's too much pressure to achieve these huge milestones within our treatment, then it's more risky for something to come up. So we really just focus on really small attainable goals that we can address day to day. So can we start with one meal a day? Great. Can we then build up to two meals a day? You know, are you getting any type of sleep? Can we find a way to get some sleep? Is there someone who can bring you some food, bring you something to drink so that you know you don't have to think about it or make it yourself? those kind of little problem solvings. That's fantastic. I know you work a little bit with yoga throughout this. Mm -hmm. Will you talk a little bit about the body work or how yoga integrates into your treatment? Sure. So I don't even get to do it as much as I would like, but definitely professionally, I hope to bring it in a lot more. Um, I got my yoga yoga certification about five years ago without even this as a thought of just, I wanted just to teach and I really liked it. But then as I started working in the field of eating disorders, I started doing more training on more trauma-informed yoga. So again, moving away from yoga to modify our body, but as yoga to feel connected to our body. Mm. And so how I have used it in my practice is usually in the form of very gentle stretching, 
a lot of yoga nidra, which is more of like guided meditation. So it's it's trying to encourage people to spend a little bit of time with their body. And that is usually very, very difficult for people who have had an eating disorder. And we try and spend time not being inside our body. Mm-hmm. And so even if it's three minutes of, of sitting and doing, you know, three deep breaths, that's yoga and that's connecting with our body in a positive way and, and could be one of the ways we start connecting again in a way that feels more positive versus the harm that that happens when we engage in disordered eating behaviors. I'm really struck by how that also feels like it bleeds into motherhood, where it's like your body has been in a lot of ways, not your own for this period of time. And so just to like (laughs) have those three deep breaths of reconnecting and saying like, I'm inside my body I'm, you know, having a relationship with my body where I am feeling sensations that are not based on, is he kicking? Is he moving? But, you know, what does it feel like to just sit inside of your own body for a minute? Yes. And I think that's such a good point because even though, you know, we're definitely talking about it in terms of eating disorder, you're absolutely right. It applies to everybody, but especially any mom Mm -hmm. postpartum because you're so right. Your body First, you're like growing this baby and you're so focused on on how's that going and how's the baby growing. And then there's, at least for myself, this feeling of my body is not my own anymore. I now use my body to feed a person. I'm This baby's uh, constantly touching me. So you, you really don't feel like it's your body the same way again. So even having five minutes where you just go and sit without the baby and do some deep breaths or lay on the floor and just feel how your body connects with the floor. All of that is that reconnection that can can sometimes feel severed when we've gone through pregnancy and postpartum. Yeah, it's such a wild journey. And there's, again, <laughs> as we were talking about at the top, it's like you can conceptually know like I'm going to grow a baby inside of me, but like all of the feelings and like the day-to-day, it's just a, such a different experience than you could imagine. It is. And you're not showering the same, like you're, (laughs) you're living in like, yeah, like I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to blow dry my hair today. This is crazy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You're in, your hair is in a bun. At least for me, I lived in stretchy pants and like nursing tanks. Mm -hmm. And so you, you're like, what's happening? I'm not sleeping. I I just, everything feels foreign for so long. So any moment, even if it's a minute long, where we can go and reconnect with our body is is going to be beneficial. It's just, it's going to do really good stuff to your brain. <laughs> yes, yes. I would love to dive in a little bit to your experience with motherhood and what was your journey toward motherhood? So I think I for sure always knew I wanted kids. I have siblings, so I, you know, and I was a nanny, and so I just knew I really liked kids, and I knew I really wanted kids. I can't ever recall a time where I questioned that I would have some, and I actually met my husband when I was really young. I was 22, and we didn't have Leona till I was 33, so I mean, we were really fortunate to have a long time together. And so we kind of postponed it because we both went back to school. So I always thought I'd have kids in my like mid-20s or late 20s. But then we kind of decided, well, I decided I wanted to be a dietitian. And so I went back to college. And then my husband at the time was a massage therapist and decided he wanted to go back to school to be a therapist. So we both decided to kind of put it on hold the kids so we could finish school. And then 
we decided we wanted to move to Asheville and kind of get settled and get our career going. So we definitely pushed it off for a while. And then when we decided to start trying, it was not as easy as we thought it would be. I think there's also this idea that, oh, well, I'm just supposed to get pregnant. That's what my female body is supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> and it was not like that. We It took us a few months to get pregnant, and then we miscarried our first pregnancy. And it was so hard, but the more I talked about it, the more I realized so many people go through that and then quietly suffer with it. It's crazy. It's just not talked about very much, but I tend to be a lot. I tend to be very open about things. And so as soon as I was like, well, we miscarried, people were like, oh, I miscarried, or I had two or three. And you're just like, oh my gosh, it's it's a community of women who struggle to get pregnant and just no one talks about it very much. And the idea that it should be easy with just within my friend group, we, there's, there were like five of us really all trying to get pregnant around the same time. And we all had different struggles too. So even having to go as far as like IVF and things like that. So this just within my small group in one town, all healthy women in our thirties, you know, like just really struggling with getting pregnant. I was very fortunate that it only took us three months to get pregnant after the miscarriage. And that was Leona. And that pregnancy stuck and it was good. I was very terrified the whole first trimester yes. though. Oh my gosh. Um, of like, okay, like any tiny twinge that I felt, I was like, oh no, is this another miscarriage? Um, and then we actually had, I technically had a, a high risk pregnancy one because of the gestational diabetes, but then I also had a blood test come back that could indicate spina bifida, mm. which is like a spinal neural, it's a neural tube defect. Mm -hmm. So we had to go see a genetic counselor and go to like the high risk OB center in our town. And it was terrifying. And it turned out she didn't have spina bifida, but they had to watch me really closely. I had to have growth, like intense growth scans every month to make sure that her fluid was good, that the umbilical cord was still providing nutrients from the placenta. So it was just kind of nerve-wracking the whole time. And then everyone tells you, like, don't stress. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> cool. I just won't worry about this. Yeah. Then. yeah. And, I mean, the upside was all the ultrasounds because I guess in normal pregnancy you only get, like, two or three. And I was like, really? I get them every month. <laughs> we have a book at this point because we've had so many different things where we're just like, all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I had to be induced two weeks early for high blood pressure, which is very common if you have gestational diabetes. I was really fortunate that I didn't have, I had a, a fairly mild case. I was able to manage it with just diet and exercise, but still it wears the placenta out a little bit faster and you are just at risk for blood pressure issues at the end. So ended up being induced at 38 weeks. Can you tell me a little bit about how you navigated and managed gestational diabetes? And if you have any tips or any, you know, especially with the dietitian aspect of it. Yeah. So it was a very interesting journey because I, I don't think it even crossed my mind that I would test positive just having zero risk factors, even knowing that it's related to the placenta. I just was like, no, I'll just mm -hmm. go in and do my glucose test. Mm -hmm. and, and then I failed it miserably. And they're like, so you got to go do the long one, which is just torture for pregnant women. It's a fasting. And then for the three hour one, you drink this 
way worse drink than from the one hour. And you can't even drink water. Ugh. And you have to sit there for three hours. It was horrible. Oh. And I failed that one miserably, too. I, my doctor was like, no, you for sure have it. <laughs> no. And at that time, I was actually a diabetes educator at the hospital. So I was like, well, I will treat myself. So my first recommendation is to seek out a dietitian. Doctors are wonderful. My OBGYN, I love but they usually just kind of throw you a pamphlet and give you a little rundown and then send you on your way. And usually you're terrified. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You, you don't have a lot of information. And in my experience, the clients I worked with felt they had done something wrong. Mm. So the first thing I always tell my clients, if you or anyone who has gestational diabetes, is you didn't do anything. This is about your placenta, and and it just causes a mess in your body and how your body processes glucose. So it is not your fault, and we can take care of it. You know, I think then people get really scared because they just hear about what could go wrong with the baby if you have gestational diabetes. So I also make sure my clients know. When we hear about those complications, that is uncontrolled diabetes. Just because you have the diagnosis does not mean you're going to have a baby with any problems. So that is why I recommend a dietitian because they can really walk you through what diet changes you need to make and how you can pair diet. And for some people, they need medication. So how you can pair diet and medication to ensure that you have a safe pregnancy and a healthy baby. Without getting too much into the diet piece, mm-hmm. it really is about modifying how you eat your carbohydrates and more about spreading them out through the day. So I think the other misconception is you have gestational diabetes, you can't eat carbs. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to have carbs. Your baby requires a lot of them to grow. You require a lot of them to just function. Um, but it's about having smaller amounts more frequently throughout the day so that you don't overwhelm the blood system with too much sugar at one time. And about pairing your foods with really good protein sources, really good fat sources, um, and more about that versus cutting out things. So it's a lot more about how you eat your carbs throughout the day and how you pair them with other things. That's great. This might be a really silly question, but I'm assuming that the answer is since it is a placenta issue, which I had no Mm -hmm. idea. So thank you because – I feel like that's not out there nearly enough. No. And usually they don't even – I have a great OBGYN who was like, girl, it's your placenta. It's like no big deal. But a lot of times I don't think that doctors make patients really aware of that. I think they just tell them you have it and throw a little bit of information at them and send them away and they're just so scared. Yeah. Yes. Because it feels like overwhelming and it feels like – especially I think anything with food, you go – oh, I don't want to do this wrong. Like, I don't want to eat too little. I don't want to eat too much. I don't want to eat the things you're not supposed to eat when you're pregnant. You know, it just, there's a lot of rules immediately and Mm -hmm. it's high stakes because you're growing a human being. So it's just another thing to add on there of like, am I doing this right? This is the silly part of the question. I'm assuming after you pass the placenta, then that your body resets back to normal. Is that how it happens generally? Yes. So that is not a silly question at all. People ask that all the time. So yes, once you do not have that placenta in you anymore, for almost everybody, the diabetes resolves itself. Statistically, you are at a slightly higher risk for developing diabetes later in life, but it's a very small percentage 
And there are so many factors that go into if someone develops diabetes or not. So it just depends on family history, genetics. I mean, there's just so many factors. But for a vast majority of people, if you have gestational diabetes, when you have that baby, you do not have diabetes anymore. They will do another sugar test, Mm -hmm. blood sugar test, usually six to eight weeks postpartum basically similar to the one hour glucose test you do in pregnancy, just to make sure that your body's responding and that it, it is processing glucose appropriately again. Got it. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. It's crazy. I remember eating like, like in the hospital, I was like, someone needs to go get me um, a fettuccine Alfredo. <laughs> like I need, yes. <laughs> cause yeah, cause I still ate pasta, but you have to eat smaller amounts and like, and I just wanted to be able just to eat a bowl of pasta, yes. which my body didn't process as well in pregnancy. And I was like, whoever it is, someone bring me a bowl of fettuccine Alfredo. My baby's out. I brought me. a human into the world. It's time for pasta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you tell me a little bit about your postpartum experience? You mentioned having some postpartum anxiety And I'm curious both about just that experience in general. I'm wondering how you recognize that or realized that, like, I guess, how did you navigate that? I think being my type of personality, which is I like structure and order, and I like to plan and know, and none of those things happen with a brand new baby. And so that really started the anxiety, I think, for me of just... And the sleep deprivation. I mean, it sleep deprivation heightens anxiety. It heightens depression just on its own. And I just found myself worrying all the time, which you're going to. I mean, it's hard to gauge. And I can, I'm not a mental health professional, so I can really just speak to how it was for me. You're going to worry. You're going to stress. But when it's hard to turn it off is when I started to be worried is I would – she would cry a little bit and I would start crying. Like it was hard for me to separate – normal baby stuff and roll with it. You know, I remember there's kind of like the twilight time, which is very normal for babies to be fussy, like in that like 5 to 7 p.m. range. And Leona was very mild. Some babies, it's really rough. And she was very mild, but it still would send me into such a panic. I would have to leave the room. My husband would have to kind of handle it during that time. And I was also struggling to sleep even when I had the opportunity to sleep. And so I think my husband being a therapist, he was like, I really think you should talk to somebody. And so my lactation consultant is who I talked to about it. She like asked me a very simple question and I just started bawling. I don't even remember what the question was. And she was like, maybe (laughs) we should get someone in here just to, you know, like a a perinatal therapist. That's a therapist that specializes in pregnancy, postpartum, mental health and just see. And so that's what I did. I I found a therapist who specialized in like postpartum anxiety and depression. And it was a game changer. She really just normalized a lot of things for me. We put a lot of things into place to help alleviate some of the anxiety. Some people need medication because it is so chemical. And so I definitely recommend people to seek out help if you feel like it's becoming too much because there is stigma on that as well. The idea that having a baby is really hard and not fun a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that was definitely my experience is seeing the therapist really helped. And then in the food realm, 
yes, there's a lot of our serotonin production that happens in our gut. And so serotonin is one of our like happy hormones. So I really just tried to focus on consistency of I need to eat regularly. I need to eat foods that I crave, even if that's donut, even if that's a milkshake. And I need to make sure that I'm getting protein, that I'm getting, you know, good omega-3 fats like salmon and flax and avocados and things that, that will also help with my brain, help with my energy. So I just tried to be as open about what I wanted to eat and not worry, you know, is this going to affect if I lose weight or anything like that? Really just approaching food in terms of what do I need and what do I want and kind of meshing those together. That's fantastic. Do you have any advice for partners who, if you you do have a partner and they're sensing like postpartum anxiety or also actually to go back to like any type of disordered eating around, you know, postpartum or, or pregnancy, how they can be integrated or a support person in that journey and experience? Yeah. You know, I won't speak too much to the mental health piece. I don't want to overstep, but I think just having my husband and my sister there at the time being like, you know, do you need to lay down? And then my husband, I think for spouses and partners, just really tuning in and noticing if it feels, if it doesn't feel like it goes away. Right. So any postpartum person is going to have times of anxiety, going to have baby blues where you're crying and your hormones are crazy. But does it not seem to be getting better after like six or eight weeks? Does it seem to be getting worse? Does there not seem to be many breaks where things feel better? You know, and so looking out for things like that were kind of, at least in my experience, you know, I was at like eight weeks postpartum, I think, when I kind of realized, okay, this should have been a lot better by now if it was strictly hormones. Mm-hmm. So I think I need some outside help. And from the eating disorder piece is first recognize you can't fix it. Mm. So I think that's a really hard piece for partners or support people with someone with an eating disorder is they want to fix it. They just want to like take care of it and, and you know, either provide food if it's a restrictive eating disorder or you know, I know some people who want to like take food away if it's a binge eating disorder, but it's, it's more about asking, what do you need right now? How can I help? And bringing in other people. It is not your partner's job to cure anyone's eating disorder. That's what dietitians who specialize in eating disorders are for, especially what therapists who specialize in eating disorders are for is that's who you bring in. You're just there to Keep an eye out if you if maybe you're seeing some things that worry you, but be more curious would be my recommendation versus trying to change it. But be like, okay, so I'm noticing that you didn't eat anything today. You know, how are you feeling? Can I bring you something? Do we need to check in with a dietitian? You know, so be more of the curious support partner. That's fantastic. It's such a good reminder that it is you can have a team around you and, you know, there are resources out there. Cause I think especially right now with COVID or with the intimacy of just bringing a baby into the world, you can kind of get this cocoon feeling. Sure. And so it's just, it's really, I think a helpful reminder that 
there are other people out there that can help you, you know, navigate this. Yes. And I recommend that for any new mom too, is it'll look a little different now because we're all isolated, but I joined like a local Facebook mom group where you could post questions or ask for support because you need people like that. It takes a village is so real. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and and you're so right. It's very easy to get into a, a more of an isolated cocoon, especially right now. I can't even imagine having a baby right now when everyone is so isolated. So whether you have any, even if you don't have postpartum anything, I still recommend reaching out, having a support team, whether that's other moms, whether it's your family, And husbands and partners are wonderful, but having people who've been through or are going through the same type of thing is just a totally different feeling of support. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. General question that I like to ask is just, is there anything that you feel like is under talked about inside of pregnancy that you wish was talked about more? It's okay that it sucks sometimes. I think in the age of social media, you just see all the like glorious pictures on Instagram and and everything's like, you know, hashtag blessed. I'm, I love this baby. I just, I'm obsessed with this baby. And you, you will be, but then there will be days where you're, you really don't like that baby very much. <laughs> and, and you love that baby, but you, that baby was a little a-hole today. <laughs> and... <laughs> And you feel like there's something wrong if you're like, this sucks. (laughs) And so to give yourself so much grace that some days are going to be horrible and some days are going to be amazing and beautiful, it's okay to have all of it. And that that doesn't make you a bad mom. That doesn't mean that you hate your baby, you know, and and that it's okay. You know, I, I have a good friend who just had twins and she sent me a message and she was like, I feel so guilty because I'm like these days are so hard, but I feel like I should just feel so lucky that I had them. And I was like, well, you can feel lucky that you had your babies and acknowledge that this is really hard and that's okay. And if you set the expectation that every day should be blissful and happy, you're going to, you're going to end up really struggling because that's just unattainable in my mind. Absolutely. It's kind of like implementing this idea of both and where it's like, yeah, your baby can be being a jerk right now. And I can know that I'm very thankful for having a baby. And it's like both can exist simultaneously and that's fine. And to do you, that's the other thing is like, I know some moms who like don't feel comfortable leaving their baby for months. And if that doesn't feel right for you, that's great. I had to take breaks from, from Leona, like from a very young age, I would need to go for an hour and like walk around target with my coffee. And I would come back so refreshed and so ready and just figure out what you need. Like that it doesn't need to look like so-and-so on Instagram that you do what you need to do to be the best mom. And and some, at least for me, that meant breaks. Like I needed time by myself. And so I had to work that in. And what people kept telling me is that you're going to see this baby the second this baby comes out of you and you're just going to be connected. And that didn't happen for me. It took about 48 hours. Like, I mean, I, I, I held her. I was definitely overwhelmed. And I, I definitely had a very like surge of emotions and love. But that that kind of instant connection that people talk about didn't happen instantly for me. It took, it took a couple of days. I think a lot of it was anxiety and sleep deprivation. 
But I, I felt bad. I felt guilty about that. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, am I not bonding? Like, is something wrong with me? You know, and then it did happen. Um, but I've also had other moms tell me the same thing of like, yeah, no, it took me a little bit too, but no one talks about yeah. that. And so, <laughs> you know, that it, it motherhood looks so different for so many different people and that to really focus on what what's happening for you and your family versus what you've heard or what other people have experienced. When those feelings of guilt arise, do you have any things you do to try to navigate that? Or do you have like ways that you talk to yourself? Or is that just something you've kind of implemented where you have a pretty good acceptance of that now? Probably a hybrid of all of that. <laughs> so I, I'm a therapy person. So I, I have gained skills. Like I've, I've had a therapist off and on since my 20s. So I gained skills in that of like, I'm better at processing through guilt of like, okay, this is a temporary sensation. But then through therapy, I've learned like some techniques of like that check-in of like, okay, so is this thought true, right? So like, Mm -hmm. is this actually true that I'm a horrible mom because I need to go to Target by myself? Like, does that actually align as true? And no, it doesn't. But even if you did feel like it was true, then the next piece of that, is it helpful? Mm. So sure, maybe I still am struggling with feeling guilty that I left the house and left my baby with my husband. But is that helpful? Does that help me as a mom? Does that help me as a person to just sit in this discomfort and this guilt and shame? No, it doesn't help. (laughs) Right. Oh, I love that so much. And it is like, Something that I was really struck by that just felt similar was like with anxiety spirals, one thing for me to recognize, like if I'm in that, it's like, am I trying to figure out something that you can't figure out? Okay, so maybe I'm just like having anxiety right now and like (laughs) I can move on to another thought now because there's nothing to figure out here, you know? it's yeah. So I love what you say about not only like, is this true, but is this helpful? Because I think that second piece is just like fundamental of saying like, yeah, okay, I feel a little guilt still, but, like, it's not helpful, (laughs) you know? No, because you can, especially if you're caught up in it, you can convince yourself it's true. Like, even if it's not true, you can be like, yes, I'm a horrible person for doing this. But then if you really check in of, like, well, okay, is this helpful? Is this thought process helping me at all right now? Generally, you're going to find no. And also, I constantly remind myself that this will pass. Like, even right now, when it feels like, who knows when this will be over, and, you know, Leona's having a meltdown and poor thing's been trapped inside. And so I'm like, okay, so to this moment right now kind of sucks, but it's going to be over soon, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we'll have another moment that'll be better. And so it's especially when you're first got this baby, it feels like moments won't end at times. And so just constantly reminding myself of like, okay, this is the moment right now, but this is not my forever moment. Oh, that is like, again, I'm just like, this is going to be my mantra because it it feels like it covers everything. It's like eating, anxiety, motherhood, all of it, where it's just like, just do the next thing, just like one moment at a time. And then know that like, yeah, sometimes it'll get harder and sometimes it'll get easier, but we're just doing one moment at a time. Exactly. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would want to touch on? probably the big thing is this is like kind of circling back to the eating disorder Mm -hmm. piece is it is very, very rare for OBGYNs to screen for any type of eating disorder history 
disordered eating and pregnancy, I was actually losing weight in my third trimester. I was like struggling to eat enough and no one checked in with me about it. And finally I said, does anyone care that I am losing weight? I'm in my third trimester. I should be gaining weight. And they were like, oh, oh, like it hadn't even occurred to them. And again, I love my OB, but there's just weight bias in the medical community. And so I really advocate for people or I I really tell people to advocate for themselves. If you have a history of an eating disorder, please, please, please tell your doctor. Find help and bring in a support team. Even if you're not, if you feel like you've got it under control, it doesn't hurt to have people to check in with, even if it's just your OB for a while. But but really trying to, to bring that out into the light because most doctors won't ask. And then for my, my pregnant mamas who live in larger bodies, to also ad for, advocate for yourself if you feel like there's weight shaming or weight bias happening. And you can ask that your doctor not talk to you about weight. You can, you know, that's the big thing is I think women who live in larger bodies are, are really stigmatized in pregnancy about you shouldn't gain as much or or you are automatically unhealthy if you live in a large body. And that is not true. Sure, there are people who live in large bodies who are unhealthy, but the same goes for people who live in small mm-hmm. bodies. We can be unhealthy or healthy at any body size. So that's the big thing is that you as the person, as the patient, really advocate for yourself for what you need. Thank you so much for saying that. It is so important to remember to advocate for yourself and that you have a say in this. Even though you're dealing yes. with doctors, it is your body still and your experience and your baby. So how are you going to make sure that you can be an advocate for yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. You you know yourself better than your doctors ever will. And there are just things that they will not ask or things that they will say that can be insensitive. And so I really always encourage my clients or anybody to ask for what you need and really stick with that. You know, that, you know, with some of my clients who have a history of maybe anorexia, we we ask that they don't see their weight during their pregnancy. You know, we ask that we it's just not a topic. And same thing with any of my clients. Weight doesn't have to be a topic. Even if a doctor is concerned that there is too much weight gain or something like that, we still can talk about it from a behavioral standpoint mm-hmm. of like, what what is it, what does your day-to-day look like with food? You know, we don't know what people's access to food is. We don't know what their education around food is. And in my experience, focusing on weight doesn't help anybody, whatever body size you live in. So I am always an advocate that we don't need to talk about weight. <laughs> I love that. It feels profound to me almost the difference of the question of asking directly about weight versus saying like, what does a meal look like for you? Or what does a day look like of eating? And that would give you, I would guess, so much more information anyway. So yeah, that little switch in how you talk about it feels like it opens up worlds to me. Yeah, it definitely does. And it's, it's being curious versus judgmental, you know, and I know doctors, I I mean, I'm not, this is not me slamming doctors Mm -hmm. at all. But one of the things I get to do in my field is I go and I talk to medical professionals about addressing weight bias and, and how can we be more open when we talk to people and, and really not just assuming something about a person based on their body size. And so I'm really passionate about that. And unfortunately, a lot of that rests on the patient in terms of asking for what you need. 
But I, I do see baby shifts in the medical community in terms of how they do address people and their body and not automatically getting into weight or weight shaming. It also just makes me feel really optimistic for the future, <laughs> you know? Yes, me too. I do see it changing. Yeah. 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 It's slow, but it's changing. Yeah. And thank you for doing that work because we need people oh, like you to thanks. keep doing that. Oh, yeah. I love it. I'm really very fortunate in that I just am so passionate about what I do. And and so I'm, I love it. It's inspiring to me. It makes me really excited. <laughs> oh, thank you. I actually had one more question that's going to feel like a non sequitur. If you have one more moment. Sure. I was curious about with your knowledge now that your baby is eating obviously solid meals now, yeah. what the process of introducing food is and like how, how you navigate that. I love talking about this. <laughs> I could talk for hours. <laughs> Truly, um, I could talk to you for hours. So I have been like, this is so great. <laughs> um, I did what's called baby led weaning. So I don't know if you've read anything about it. And it's basically that you let your baby be the lead and how they feed themselves. So people are born with a, an innate ability to regulate their hunger and fullness we as the parents tend to override that through spoon feeding and things like that. Not intentionally, you know, we just are like, finish this bowl of food. Even if we see cues of like, they're turning their head or they're pushing it away, we still just, we just do that. Mm -hmm. So the principles of baby led weaning is that I am the person who makes the decision of what food is offered. But then my child is the decision maker of how much of it is eaten. Mm. And I don't get involved in that piece. So I present her with, you know, her three options on her tray and she can eat all of it. She can eat none of it. She can eat all of one of it. And that's up to her. And it's messy. It's hard to watch because there's a lot of gagging because that also means you usually skip the pureed stage. So babies also have a really, really good gag reflex and um, we tend to be scared of gagging in babies, but it's normal. It's not choking. So that means that instead of going to purees, I did more of like what I was eating, but just cooked a little bit longer and mashed up a little bit. And we did that and loved it. Research shows you have less risk of picky eating. You have less risk of actually eating disorders and disordered eating because I'm not telling her she has to clear her plate. I'm not telling her she has to, you know, that we don't eat this thing. It's hard. I'm a dietitian. I have training in this. And there are still days where I watch her like just eat butter noodles and only butter noodles for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'm like, when is she going to eat a vegetable? (laughs) (laughs) But then she will. She will, you know, kids, they actually like a wide variety of foods. I recommend definitely presenting a wide variety of foods and not not becoming like a short order cook for your kids. I see that happen a lot of like the mom and dad have a meal and then they just will make something separate for their own kid. And again, if that's what works for your family though, you do that. What we did though is she always ate what we were eating and she ate with us, which I think also was really instrumental in her having a wide range of foods that she really enjoys having some normal toddler pickiness, but nothing extreme because she just eats with us. We eat dinner together every night and she eats what we eat. And I feel like that, it worked out really well for us. 
And what we also know about kids and like really little too is you need to look at the week as a whole. Mm. So they they regulate their calories a little bit differently than as adults. And so like there may be a day where she eats like a bird, but she's going to make up for that in the week. She's going to eat more at another meal, want seconds at another meal. And so I think it's natural to be nervous if you watch your kid eat like one bite of food. You're like, no, 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 I need you to eat more. I need you to eat mm-hmm. more. But really trying to trust in your your infant or your toddler and that they they can regulate. I also think for me personally, routine is good. It's it's easy to become just a snack machine. And, and even I'm guilty of that in quarantine when you're just trying to get by. Mm-hmm. But having designated meal times and designated snack times is a good way to ensure that they will eat at the next meal, you know, versus if they just kind of snack all day. And the other big piece we do is we do the all food fits model, which means I don't prevent her from having sugar. I am in charge of when she has access to it, but there's no food she's not allowed to have. Like she can have a cupcake if we're having a cupcake and she can even have a cupcake if she doesn't eat all of her dinner. Because when we have a lot of food rules or we use sweets only as a reward system or we prevent access to foods to our kid is when we usually see them having um, an unhealthy relationship with it later, right? Mm -hmm. So that might be the kid who goes to a birthday party and eats like seven cupcakes and then gets sick because I'm not allowed to have cupcakes. This is so exciting. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to regulate this versus if like, okay, yeah, I'm allowed to have cupcakes. So I'll have one here and then I'll be fine, you know? And so I think I also am just a believer too in and that all food is is allowed food. I love that because it, it it's moving away from that good food, bad food thing, which is just mm-hmm. so embedded and gets it so is. strong as you get older. So to try to have that healthy relationship to that right off the bat is really great. Yeah. And the thing is, we are a diet culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I it's not something I like, but I, you know, and having a daughter, I'm so aware that she's already going to be exposed to so many things about needing to be a certain body size, mm-hmm. you know, good foods versus bad foods. And so if I can protect her from that within her own home, I'm going to do that. I can't protect her from what she encounters out in the world as much, but what she hears in our house is going to be different. We don't body shame in this house. We don't food shame in this house. And hopefully that will provide her some foundation to help combat that that really intense diet culture that she'll encounter in the world. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah. That was amazing. And I feel like I've gotten so much out of that. So I really, really appreciate that. Oh, good. Good. It was really nice meeting you. So nice to meet you too. Thanks for having me on. Oh my gosh. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Week by Week. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And follow me on Instagram at weekbyweekpodcast. Check out the show notes for additional resources I used or referenced during this episode. This podcast was produced during the COVID-19 pandemic and recorded remotely. Our show today was produced by me, Celeste Busa, and Dave Hill, and edited by Douglas Sarine and Colleen Beasley. Week by Week is a Gumption Pictures production.